Well, today may be the most challenging lesson I've ever taught. And perhaps it may be the hardest lesson for you to, that you ever heard. Now, how's that for an attention-getting statement? Okay. And to help communicate this lesson, I, I've thought about a coin. So if you would, visualize a coin with me. And you know, coins have two sides. Well, this coin also has a name. It's called Christianity. And the first side of this coin, the head side, we look at it, and it's called salvation. And salvation, it begs one question. Why would God let you into heaven? Why would God let you into his heaven? You know, that's a great question to start this morning off with. And I think most of us gathered in this room, we think we know the answer to that. Some of us know the answer to that. And yet there's others here in this room that have no idea why God should let you into his heaven. You know, we could spend all morning just going over all the possible answers to this question. And over the years, people have said, well, if God knew everything I've done, he shouldn't let me into heaven. Other people have said, well, God should let me into heaven because of all the things I have done. I've even had tell me, people tell me that they've been a good person. They've been really good. They've taken care of sick family. They've even taken care of neighbors. One person even told me they took care of sick pets. But when you boil all these answers down to their simplest form, when you look at it all, they're talking about what they've done. They're talking about their works, about how good they have been, or at least how good they've tried to be. But trying to be good, or even being good, our work does not get us into heaven. The Bible is clear that our works and our deeds are useless. Paul said in Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, you and I cannot be good enough. We cannot work our way into heaven. So let me say that again so there's no confusion. You and I cannot be good enough. We cannot work our way into heaven. All that is needed is Jesus Christ and his redemptive work on the cross. His death and resurrection paid the price. It did the work for us. That's the only way for us to get into heaven. The one scripture I think that summarizes this most that almost all of us knows is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's grace is a free gift. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all we have to do, all we have to do is receive that free gift. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. And what great good news it is. As I said, most of you know this side of the coin, or at least most of us have heard about this side of the coin. But how much do we know about the other side of this coin? The tail side of, the, of this coin of Christianity. This side is called discipleship. This side addresses the question, what does Jesus expect now that I believe? What does Jesus expect now that I believe? And this is the hard part that I was talking about. 
this is the hard part because I don't know if we get it. I don't know if we understand that there are expectations after we make a profession of faith. You know, someone once asked me, what keeps you up at night since I'm the executive pastor on staff here? They asked me, you know, does the, not making the budget, does that keep you up at night? And the first couple of years I was here, yeah, it did keep me up at night. And then I realized there was nothing I could do about that, so why, why let it keep me up? So I sleep really well most evenings. But there are occasions, occasions I'll wake up and I wonder, maybe concern, maybe I'll even throw in the word worry, that I worry about the ridge. I worry about you guys and I worry about the leadership here at the ridge. I, I wonder if we really get it. I pray that we do. But part of that is because I read at the end of Matthew 7 that there was a group of folks much like us that went out on a mission trip. And they did all these wonderful things. They actually healed people. Lame people walked. It was an amazing story there. And they came back and they were reporting all this. Maybe they were bragging, but I read it that they were reporting. And Jesus looked at them and said, I don't know who you are. You don't get it. And I'm going, what? They did all this and they didn't get it. Something to think about. You know, sometimes we have hard time seeing and understanding what God is doing. But God is always, always doing more than one thing when he does something. And it's no difference with today's scripture. Jesus is doing at least two things in these normal but shocking series of encounters. Folks that have made a profession of faith in Christ, folks just like you and me, the 12 disciples and folks that Jesus meets as he's going down the road. And Jesus says to each of them something that's very hard and something that's also very sweet. Jesus is communicating expectations. And if we take a time and we meditate on these verses... You know, let these verses kind of marinate in our mind. I think you'll see that Jesus is doing more than one thing in these encounters as well. So we're going to spend the rest of this time just talking about some of these expectations. And the first expectation is Jesus expects us to be humble. Jesus expects us to be humble. The first encounter involved the disciples. The scripture says the disciples were arguing over who was the greatest. Now, can't you just visualize this, this James and John? Remember, these guys were called the sons of thunder. So these guys were just really talking it up. They were getting louder and louder, talking about how great they were. I can just imagine that they were telling the other 12, hey, I didn't see you guys last week on top of the mountain. You know, it was me, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah up there. Where were you guys? You know, we're the greatest. Of course, they left out, you know, Peter was there too, but, you know. So after they finished the tirade, I can see these two guys, you know, maybe they did a chest bump, or at least they did a high five about how great they were, right? So they were talking about how good they were. These way, these 12 founding fathers of the church, the way they were acting reminded me of a story about three little boys I heard about. Three little boys on the playground. And these little boys were trying to outdo each other and talk about how great their dads were. 
first little boy, his dad was a farmer. And he was telling his friends, hey, you know, my dad just sold the cotton crop and he made $100,000. So, you know, that's pretty good. Second little boy said, hey, that's nothing. My dad's a lawyer. And he made $100,000 every time he goes to court. And he goes to court a lot. Well, not to be outdone, the third little boy said, guys, you know, my dad's a preacher. And every Sunday morning, it takes four guys to carry out all the money he makes. <laughs> that's my one joke, so I'm glad you laughed. But these disciples were acting like these little boys. They were very prideful. They were very full of themselves. And Jesus addressed their pride and their boasting in verse 48 by saying, The one who is least among all of you, that is the one who is great. But no sooner had Jesus spoke, just like those boys, John was trying to redirect their admonishment. John was saying, hey, you know, wait a minute. How about this other guy's? You know, and the things they were doing, you know, he was pointing fingers at them. But Jesus quickly brought this back to John and his buddies with the words in verse 50 when he said, For he who is not against you is for you. Jesus expects us to be humble, to put him first and others before our wants or our desires. You know, looking out among the folks at the ridge, I think most of us are pretty humble. I don't see very many people, if any, that are standing up, beating on their chest, talking about how great they are. But one thing that did occur to me that I went out and started chasing rabbits a little bit is on these mornings we all come here and we all have our favorite seat we like to sit in. And, you know, there are some people that get here a little bit later than others. And those that get here a little bit later kind of have a hard time finding a place to sit. So it might be a little bit humbling for us if we might set a little closer, a little closer in to give these latecomers some seats on the sides or in the back. Just a thought that we might have. Well, Jesus encounters three folks as he heads toward Jerusalem. In verse 57, to the man who says, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then in verse 59, Jesus speaks first and calls another, follow me. And the man responds, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. To which Jesus replies in verse 60, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as far as you go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Then a third believer says in verse 61, I will follow you, Lord. But first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. To this, Jesus responds in verse 62, No one, after putting his hand to a plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Interesting encounter. Interesting words. But to help us see kind of the bigger picture here, let's go back to verse 51. It says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. The ESV version says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. And now we also know what Jerusalem meant for Jesus. He said to his apostles in a few chapters forward in Luke 18, he said, See, we are going to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man to the, uh, by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will arise. 
so see this ominous ring, this ominous ring in verse 51 that we need to hear when Jesus said, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And to make it clear the implications of going to Jerusalem, Luke tells us what happens next and why. In verse 52, Jesus sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because he was going to Jerusalem. This is an expectation for us. If you join Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, you may not have a place to stay. You may not be popular. In fact, you may be rejected. If you join Jesus, you may be rejected. You know, in today's culture, there seems to be a double standard. It seems many folks are being rejected just because they're following Jesus. With that in mind, three times we read the word follow to describe what it means to to be a disciple of Jesus. In verse 57, I will follow you. In verse 59, follow me. Verse 61, I will follow you. The expectation of this phrase is that being a disciple of Jesus or being a Christian is more than just learning. It's about him. It includes following him where he goes. Luke said in chapter 14, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, being a disciple is more than learning. You must also follow. There is more than one thing going on when Jesus said, follow me. You know, think about the setting of Jesus going to Jerusalem and having just been rejected in Samaria because he's going to Jerusalem. He expects us to follow and me with the emphasis on me. And he also expects us to follow with the emphasis on follow me. There is me, there is Jesus, and there is my expectations. There is this sweetness and there is this suffering. There is Jesus and there is Jerusalem. This is the way his expectations have always been. And that's the way they're always going to be. When Jesus said at the end of his life, go make disciples of all nations, he wrapped that expectation, that path, that suffering, that road to Jerusalem in his mighty and merciful self. But first he reminded us by saying, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. And then he ended in saying, I will be with you. I will be with you to the end of the age. In that directive to go, we see the follow and the me portion. And yet there is also the follow and the me portion. His assurance that, we, that he is with you and that he will always be with you. There is the path to the end of the earth and there is Jesus who will be with us. So when you hear these words, follow me, hear these two things and not just the one. You know, what do you think that Jesus was doing the way he responded to these believers? Have you thought about that? What is he doing in the way he responds? No place to lay your head. Let the dead bury their dead. Put your hand on the plow and don't look back. What do you suppose he was doing? In these challenging responses, I see Jesus teaching, and I see him testing. 
Jesus was teaching that the Christian road through Jerusalem will be a very hard road. And it will require sacrifice. Sacrifices of home, sacrifices of family. Jesus was also testing to see what was the greatest treasure in their lives. Each of these three said, I will follow you. And basically, Jesus turned to them and said, Really? Guys, really? You really love me? You really treasure me? Then know that there's a cost. So today, as we look at these encounters, consider something. Consider how much do you, do you treasure Jesus? What are you willing to give up to follow Jesus? So there are two things going on in these counters. And today, there are two things going on right now in this room. First, Jesus is offering himself up. He's offering himself up for our fellowship, our friendship, and our partnership in life. Just think of it. The creator of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting, born of a virgin as the Holy One of God, perfect, perfect in life and triumphant over sin and death, over hell and all the demons you could possibly meet. In Him are all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This Jesus is saying to you, follow me. He's not saying, hey, you go over there, I'm going to stay here in Bethlehem. But he said, I'm going over there. Follow me. And I will be with you to the end of the age. And I will never, never forsake you. John Patton was a 19th century missionary to some southern Pacific islands, New Herpides to be exact. And he wrote back in 1889 of, his, uh, of an experience. He said that uh, John was being pursued by hostile natives and being entirely at their mercy, he wrote, I, though perplexed, felt it best to obey. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were yesterday. I heard the frequent discharge of muskets and the yells of savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothly in my soul. Then when the moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow, as I told all my heart to Jesus, alone, yet not alone, if it be to glorify my God, I would not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone and all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you? So this next expectation, Jesus expects to be first in your life. In this passage, Jesus is testing you to see if he is first in your life, if he is really your treasure, if he is really your joy, if he is really your security, if he is really your hope, if he is your friend in times of loneliness, if he is your home, if he is your father and mother, 
if he is your power to look straight ahead, to test all these ways, Jesus tells us what it's going to cost. At first read, at first we read, we, we think these words seem very hard and very harsh. But don't, don't make more of them and don't make them more difficult than they are. Jesus is not saying there will never be a time when you go without a bed, a pillow, or a roof over your head. And he's not saying it will always be wrong to be at your parents' funeral. And Jesus is not saying that one battle with fear, that one mistake will make you unfit to be his disciple. But understand, understand these are hard sayings and the way you also understand Jesus' words to the rich young ruler or to Zacchaeus. You know, to the rich young ruler, Jesus said, it's going to cost you all of your possessions to follow me. Jesus said, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Come and follow me. But Jesus came in the house of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, you know, that short little tax collector, he said, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. He didn't say 100%. He said half. And he said, I will, if I defrauded anyone, anything, I'll restore it fourfold. Which Jesus responded with joy. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. So in other words, the point of Jesus' tough words to these people into us is not to create laws that Christians have to keep. Thou shall give all your money away. Or thou shall give half your money away. Or thou shall go without a bed. Or thou shall go without a funeral for your dad. The point is that Jesus knows everyone's idol. Jesus knows perfectly well what is competing in your heart with affections for him. So even this morning, even this morning, Jesus is looking. He's looking at each of us. He's looking in our face, and he sees right into our heart, right into our heart. My prayer, our prayer has been that we let him do that this morning, that we allow ourselves and, Christ, and allow Christ to look at our hearts. Jesus does this. He does this to win us for himself. His expectation is to follow me. Being with Jesus is the expectation. And it won't be easy, but it's going to be good. Paul said there will be joy even if there is continual sorrow because Jesus is with us. So Jesus raises the issue in verse 58 about your attachment to your home. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Will you follow him? What about your home your furniture, the security that you enjoy, the comforts, the comforts of AC and central heat, even that surround system. Jesus said, follow me. He's asking you, am I more precious? Am I more precious than your home? In verse 60, Jesus raises the question about our family. Let the dead bury their own dead. But as far as you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. So who do you cherish more, the spiritually dead relatives or the giver of life, Jesus Christ? The point is it's not that it's never right for a Christian to come home for his dad's funeral. The point is that it might not be right. And the issue is how it serves to proclaim the gospel and how it reveals your treasure. Who's first, Christ 
or your family. The point here is that Jesus Christ is absolute. And all other allegiances, all other allegiances are secondary. There will be a hundred choices that we must make in life. And that they have no simple biblical command to settle the issue. No simple command. The real issue will be, do you want Christ above all? Do you want to follow him more than anything else? And Jesus raises the question in verse 62 about inconsistent following. The danger of indecisive Christianity. No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You can ask any farmer, but you can't plow a straight furrow when you're looking back. You can't serve Christ. That is, you can't make Christ look great if you're always second-guessing the value of following him. Looking back means longing back. It means that we are not really sure he's worth following. It means that we're not really sure he's worth following, and especially to Jerusalem. Divided hearts, divided hearts like that are not useful in displaying the worth of Christ. Now we've looked at both sides of the coin. We know Jesus has expectations of his believers. He expects to be first in our lives. He expects you to love him more than home and the physical things of this world. Along with this, he does not want you to live in debt. He doesn't want you to have to worry and have fears that debt brings. He wants you to have an abundant life. He wants you to have an abundant, fulfilled life with joy where he is first. And he expects you to follow him, to love him as he loves. He expects us to follow him and share the gospel. He expects each and every one of us to call him Lord and Savior and tell others the good news. The Ridge regularly holds some things called agro classes, and we have these classes to equip us to help achieve these expectations. The next classes will be starting in September, so keep an eye out for these classes. And we know that salvation comes by God's grace. It's His grace alone, and all we have to do is believe. Through simple, childlike faith, we, that is you and I, can spend eternity in Jesus' home. I want to close by saying Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of following even through Jerusalem to the cross and to all the nations. Yes, he will die in Jerusalem, but that's not bad news. Not anymore. That is our life. He loved us and gave himself up for us. He didn't say, follow me to Jerusalem because he needed help with his redeeming work. But because if you are with him, you will be saved. And not only will you be saved, you will be given a mission that according to verse 60 is more precious, more precious than burying your own father. Go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. So if God is moving you at all, to consider walking with him or a closer walk with him, know this, Jesus is worthy. Following him will always mean more than one thing. 
it means for you when you are in a place of suffering and loneliness, Jesus will be there. Follow me means there is a path and there is this person. There is suffering and there is this sweetness. There is Jerusalem and there is Jesus. So we pray that you follow him today. Let's bow for prayer.